0: Today, I am joined by Peter Wang. He is the CEO and co-founder of Anaconda. He is a software developer and former physicist and an advocate for data literacy and the wider Python-based data science community. Is that generally correct, Peter?
1: That is not just generally correct. It is very correct.
0: Perfect. (laughs) Wonderful. And welcome. Welcome (laughs) to Subversive.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, very, very happy to have you on. Um, This has also been a conversation that's been a long time coming. We've been kind of chatting on Twitter and um, I wanted to have you on for a while. Um, But because you're not a... a spicy anonymous account or a, you know, a, a kind of a bona fide dissident thinker that, um, you know, people might be more familiar with from whatever strange, um, corner of, of the internet that I typically represent. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself? I mean, kind of how, how have you reached this point in, uh, in, in your existence? What what made you interested in, um, I don't know, may, maybe not necessarily dissident thought, but, um, I know the heterodox ideas, because you're, you're known to, you know, also have some, some, some ideas that are not necessarily mainstream.
1: I guess I've always just been me. <laughs> and so um, when, um, when I think somehow the current shape of the world, let's say starting with the emergence of social media um, from a traditional online web discourse format. Right. Then coupled with the rise of mobile computing and smartphones, all of that starting in the late 2000s, you know, 07, 8 timeframe. I think the last 15 years, it's shocking. It's been that long. Last 15 years, the nature of not just discourse, but also um, how we are, who we are, right? We've become these digital, digitally connected. I think some people use the term liquid. Our, Our sense of identity is melting a bit. And it, for most people, is, A thing that's happened without great contemplation not as an intentional choice it just is what it is it's where the technology guides you You click you swipe you you look at stuff you get happy you get sad you get envious you know whatever um and and that's a change in the human condition that none of us particularly asked for even the creators of the apps and the infrastructures that have done this to us did not do it by design right so that is, you know, humanity as a species and a lot of especially kind of one thing about um the more liberal countries where there's less controls and less authoritarian control of the stuff. We have allowed these things to happen. Uh it's very laissez-faire. We have this relationship with technology where we assume, you know, it makes our 401ks and the stock market go up, so it must be good. And there's not been a sense of like, hey, this stuff could be toxic. Like maybe we are at a moment where we need to revisit our connections to technology. Anyway, those conversations are starting to happen. But the point is, all these things happening have led to a change, I think, in the nature of intellectual discourse, right? And this is where, you know, classical liberals like myself or like, like, like an Eric Weinstein or some of these other folks who very much hail from the left, I would say, the traditionally left, traditional kind of very, you know, progressive-oriented leftist politics from the 90s and early 2000s, we find ourselves, you know, as we look at the connections to the intellectual background, um, we find ourselves now faced in a world where actually the intellectual underpinnings of discourse are being challenged and eroded. And as a as a uh, somewhat little r rationalist, all right, lowercase, not capital R rationalist, um, um, as someone who uh, prizes human ingenuity and creativity, who has a deep-seated uh, belief in, in, in humanism, um, I think all of these things are troubling and challenging for me when I see these dynamics emerge. And so um, relative to the way the zeitgeist has evolved, I guess I've become one of these contrarian, heterodox sort of people. Um, but at the same time, I don't feel like I particularly changed a whole lot. I just didn't go with the flow, right? And, and, and thus, you know, the contrast has emerged as the water has washed all this other stuff away, the harder rock sort of remains in contrast to the eroded canyon. And so I think that's, that's kind of the way I see it. Um, Now, my personal opinions have shifted over time, but not to the degree where it's like, you know, where I think relative to the way the zeitgeist engages in discourse today, um, the contrast there. So I don't know, that was a bit meandering, but hopefully covers a bit of the perspective.
0: Yeah, no, I th- I think that's you know the the trip that a lot of people have uh, have made from the left to the old left, but also in a way to strangely to the far right and to to chats with people like me. Um, it's uh, I think it's 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 really an important layer that you know i I'm, I'm pretty much in the space where a lot of people tend to engage mostly with with politics with um you know political philosophy political science things like that ideas at the level of ideology but i feel like one of the most underrated and important influences and in, in all the changes that we see is technological. And it's at, mm-hmm. at, a, at a level that is very hard to model from a strictly philosophical point of view. You know, this isn't necessarily like a top-down ideology. Like you hear a lot of stuff, you know, like all oh, the uh, the universities have been infiltrated by postmodernism. They might have been, but without the technological layer that allows kind of this, this um, explosion of, status linked um yeah you know um i don't know just just presentation of these ideas or just um i don't know trying to to just garner status points by by being the most whatever uh, savvy in terms of whatever postmodernist idea that you you bring to the table that just wouldn't have happened that's just not how social dynamics mm-hmm. would have happened and i feel like this is pretty much the crux of it, it's hard to say, okay, you know, to attribute weights to these things. Like, well, how, how much, you know, has this been contributing to it? But you've, you've been someone who's been thinking about this stuff for a long time and you've kind of singled out um, within the internet kind of social media. Like, well, what is it about social media that, that most people are missing?
1: What is it about social media that most people are missing? Well, I would reference, and so at the, um, at the risk of, of, you know, being self-promotional here, I would uh, point people, there is a. I did actually write something down, um, which is um, a, a blog post on Medium um, that that coalesces some of my key ideas around this, and um, it's entitled "Reframing the Social Media Problem as an Attention Crisis." Um, now, that title by itself, and I think some of this stuff is uh, maybe not new to some people. This will seem like, okay, yes, yeah, sure, we've we've people talk about the attention economy, people criticize and critique it. We've heard these arguments before but i try to really distill down to the essence of what is it that this that that makes social media something tremendously different than traditional broadcast media and even broadcast media is itself inhumane i think that's one of the things that maybe is missing for some people it's that social media it's not social media is bad and traditional broadcast tv is good it's traditional broadcast tv was pretty bad too broadcast radio you know that's how you know some of the the uh, propagandists uh, in the early 20th century got so much of their power was through propaganda, right? And so the broadcast dissemination of information like this is um, itself intrinsically dangerous. Orwell, when you think about the, the dystopian picture he painted in 1984, it was entirely on a broadcast kind of system with a very sort of cheesy you know, surveillance aspect built to it, built into it. But it's still the primary thing was the overarching. Big text, big billboards, big Big brother is watching you. It's not little brother, it's big brother. And he's always there and it's big. So this idea of one-to-many broadcast propaganda, we intrinsically understand there's something eh, alienating about it. But because we grow up, I mean, all of us, basically everyone now is, is you know, we're children of a TV and broadcast, and at least radio um, uh, technology environment. Um, we have a hard time even imagining, like imagining growing up in a way that, or growing up in an environment we didn't have broadcast, right? So it's for us, it's normalized. So social media simply takes the inhumanity of it to the next level, and so when you look at that, then you know it, it, the critique kind of flows all the way into traditional broadcast. So my um, my blog post about about this, I, I identify a few key things, which is that um, amplification creates attention scarcity, right? And one of my one of my key ideas here is that. The giving of attention is an intimate act. So, sort of like if there's a zeroth law, it's that. It's that humans are about relationships. We're relational creatures. When we give each other attention, it's an act of intimacy to some degree. And you will find in personal interactions so many different ways that violations of that are considered gauche, right? If someone's talking to you and you whip out a cell phone, Like, holy crap, right? That's incredibly rude. No one has to tell you that's rude. You just know that's kind of rude. Or you feel hurt if you're the one on the receiving end of that behavior, right? When we give something attention, it's an intimacy because we're opening ourselves up. We're actually opening ourselves up to be vulnerable to receive what this has for us. Um, Related to this, one of my favorite quotes ever is from um, Mr. Rogers. And he said, the greatest gift you can give someone is the gift of honest receiving to really receive everything they have to offer. So listening, people think that presenting or talking is a very vulnerable thing. You're very vulnerable because you're talking, you can get attacked. But actually deeply listening requires deeper vulnerability. That's actually a harder thing to do. And you're more vulnerable when you really are receiving what someone has to offer. Which then goes to say, if you're not feeling vulnerable when you're receiving, you're also not really receiving. You're not listening. You're not giving the gift of intimacy in that attention. So this, un- um, this transactional attention, unintimate attention is what the whole world traffics in now, right? Um, and the challenge is what if we create a generation or multiple generations of people who lose the ability to connect in this authentic way, who don't know how to open themselves up to be vulnerable in giving attention to something because they're surrounded by blinking lights and scrolling things and auto-playing videos all the time you know, you essentially drown the person's attention system with all these, you know, blips and bleeps. So anyway, those are the kinds of things that, you know, as I started getting into this, it really gets down to a very simple, but also a very fundamental crisis of what it means to be human, right? Managing our attention is one of the most intimate things we can do because we choose to give someone attention. We choose to give them space. You're being very patient and kind with me, listening to my long rant and rambling of an answer to your question. But I think this is, so any critique of social media as a technology, as, you know, in terms of what's done to humans, we have to start with the fundamental humanity of what is the humans want to do with each other. And it's that relationing, that intimate um, giving of attention, receiving of of attention, opening up gradually more and more vulnerability that makes us into better and deeper humans. So I'll, I'll stop there and see what, what your response you have to that.
0: Yeah, I th- I think that's that's absolutely correct and that's kind of the the ideal interaction that you'd like to have with a human but I feel like that um interaction itself requires a certain level of kind of sacrificing the superficial for a, a deeper connection where you 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 kind of have to pony up that vulnerability there is a certain cost to that interaction where you know when you just plop your your ass in the seat and just watch I don't know whatever social media for 10, 12 hours a day, you don't have to pay that cost. You're essentially only receiving the upside, but it is a hollow upside. You're actually not receiving it. You're tickling some limbic system that simulates the pleasure that you receive from having an authentic connection. Uh, it's actually really funny. I was watching this, I don't know, fitness influencer woman. And it was so interesting how she had perfected the art of of creating a connection with me on the other side, because I was, I felt like I was, you know, having coffee with a very good friend because she was right. like so kindly saying, I'm so happy you're here. I love you all. And everyone, I was, I caught myself smiling at her through the screen. And I was like, I love you too, fitness influencer woman. Right so strange because it was, this is not a genuine interaction. This is kind of a broadcast interaction. And I'm just like
1: the subject of this You're a rat being woman's... fed a sugar pellet. You're a rat being fed a sugar yeah. pellet, right? Um, and the flip side of this, even with traditional media, and that's what I'm saying, like some of these things are not just critiques of social media, traditional media creates fame. So um, that fame is actually, uh, so again, calling back to my blog post, I have this thing that receivers actually feed back to the transmitter and create oppressive fame, right? So when we think about communication technology, we tend to think about the impact of the outputs, you being the receiving end of the output from this influencer person, right? But but on the flip side of it, um, this concentration of social expectation from you and the audience, you, you being the audience here, um, it creates an obligate identity, fully controlled by the mob, which then imposes onto the person creating uh, you know the influencer or the person who's in the center of the fame, and if you listen to those celebrities, you can find places and interviews they've done. Or actually, like Justine Bateman wrote a book on fame, about how corrupting and horrible that and deeply unnatural and dehumanizing it is. And it seemed like okay, yeah, millionaire Hollywood actors and actresses, you know, cry me a river, right? No one has a lot of sympathy for them. But on the other hand, they're on the other side. I mean, they're they're the the what the cameras filming. Right? And when you look at all the influencers and everyone making their TikTok videos, and when you look at those landscapes of like beach with all these couples trying to do Instagram photos on the beach, right? you're like, everyone is slave to the machine. They're not trying to relate. I mean, if you use it as a, if they're just FaceTiming with their like parents or their kids or whatever, that's great. But if they're trying to create a little nugget capsule of perfected aesthetic to then be a sugar pill to give to lots of other rats, then it's like, why are we feeding this machine? What, what good is it doing for us? And and then I have in my blog post a quote from Cardi B, right? Who was, you know, at the height of her uh reign. And she she quit um she didn't quit Twitter, but she was ranting. She's like, all these 15-year-olds trying to tell me how to live my life, like live my life like I'm Ariana Grande or something, you know, <laughs> like I came from Disney. And she was starting to feel it because she was just this like, you know, chick off the street who made it big. And then she started feeling that oppressive fame. And she's like, You guys can't tell me who I am. And so I think all these things are related. That's the thing is that, that I'm trying to say with this. All this is related. If you look at it through the lens of identity, if you look at it through the lens of of connection, and the camera being this thing that's giving people fake attention and fake uh, um, relationships.
0: Yeah, I mean, I can I can essentially not that I'm some you know extremely famous person, but I can and see it as well. And and kind of my relationship with with my. Small audience as big as it is, and the different factions that do tend to follow me and I feel like you know the, the bigger my audience is, the more I consider, okay, who should I have on you know who is going to alienate who you know what will this faction yeah. think about this and you know and it, it it feels like I do tend to try to mirror at least you know the the leading people in every different faction and, and i do I'm not, I'm not losing sleep but I'm, I worry about how these things will, you know, overlap, you know, who's gonna, who's gonna, um, I don't know, be alienated by, by what I do. It's, it's, it's a strange thing to, yeah, to constantly have to model other people's thoughts about the potential of of what
1: you're... Well, and if you're not a monster, if you're a normal human being, you care about the people you're connecting with. And whether the connection is through some comments on, you know, a podcast or, or, you know, some tweets to you or whatever... You still want to believe it's another human being there and you're like, oh, they're really mad at me. I, you know, I need to respond to that because I'm not a robot. Like, I I feel bad that that I made someone feel bad. Right. And when you look, you know, uh, Rogan famously is like, I never read the comments. Like, don't read the comments. When you get to a certain level, you can't engage anymore like that. And so then here's the question. Right. And this is where social media, again, coming back to the question of what's wrong with social media, what's uniquely different and weird about it. Um when we've had amplification technologies in the past people there was more maybe more ceremony around it people understood that they were being amplified and that they were connecting to like if you were to take somebody with 20,000 followers on whatever platform where 20 it's actually 20,000 people or whatever and you were to put them in front of a room of like 1,000 people on stage spotlights you're like okay just just read out your tweet turn to 80 characters go and they i think a lot of people would get you know like stage fright they're like oh shit there's a thousand you know i've been in rooms in front of thousands of people and even though i give talks all the time and you know i'm used to this sort of thing it's still a little bit intimidating when you look out and there's literally thousands of pairs of eyes staring back at you and there's a hush and there's the lights on you and there's a microphone and it's dead air and they're waiting just for you and you hear yourself in the room right the i mean it's not just ceremony it's the the being there's an embodied sense of weight of gravity my words are going out to this audience i should be careful about what i say because you know all the reasons but when you're just like typing tweeting hope this goes viral boom a million views you know it's like man most people couldn't talk to a room of a thousand people you want to put them in a stadium with seventy thousand people they would freak out right a football stadium tens of thousands of people but you think about how many things we see that you know have hundreds of thousands of impressions on twitter or instagram whatever and people just don't feel the weight of the impact they're having. And I think that's where technology in general, if we don't give, you know, with great power should come great responsibility. It should feel like you're carrying great responsibility. Um, and as a consequence, I think a natural thing that's happening is we're degrading the value of the, of the spoken word, of um, interactions, all these things. It's like an inflation. It really is an inflation. We're amplifying all the stuff People are getting it. They like some of it. They hate some of it, and it just everything just feels kind of meaningless. It's like when you have too much sugar. Even as you are, eat sweet things, they don't taste sweet anymore, right? We are sort of hypersaturated in cheap, cheesy signals and aesthetics, and we're suffering tremendously for a lack of genuine, vulnerable listening, right? In environments where we can do vulnerable listening and vulnerable communications
0: yeah i i feel like this is a, a unfortunately a very deep problem that kind of ties into just very basic human nature in the sense that a lot of um our attraction to this stuff is you know as the economists say revealed preference yeah. um and yeah that's you know why why is sugar so good because you know if if you present presented to a toddler, he'll eat until, you know, he feels sick. And it's just like kind of instinctively a good thing. And we have a lot of these little triggers. Um, And you kind of, you, uh, in in your article, you also mentioned, you know, this idea of the attentional commons. And I know Matt Crawford is, who's another thinker that I really respect. He's he's great. And he's kind of written about this. Um, And I feel like it's not just the attentional commons. I feel like everything around us. Like for example, relationships, you know, relationships between men and women, um, they were a commons, you know, a very subtle commons that people didn't realize was a commons. But then when you have kind of this algorithmic dating where you just superimpose a, a database on top of everyone who's dating in a city, you know, you're essentially just stomping on this subtle commons of, you know, body language and, you know, the kind of how many people can one person see in a day? Like, I don't know, 10, right. 15 at max. Now you see, you can see a thousand if you swipe hard enough or something like that. It's just all of these little things that used to kind of have a balance, you know, like the, the balance between predator and prey. It's completely been blown up. Uh, and that's just one example. You know, even, even the food economy is a, was a comment, you know, just how much food would go to market, how much food you can see, what types of food, what types of combinations, palatability, all of that stuff, that's also been exploded. So I feel like essentially the the kind of the end state of capital capitalism, techno capitalism, this kind of combination of how far we can take it and, and what the market wants is this endless Tingling, you know, just just pushing buttons in the deepest recesses of our brain mm-hmm. where it's like and and also it's, it's very predatory to the people who can help themselves the least, which is also a, a bell curve. Right. And the people at the fringes at the bottom, they're essentially just left to be, you know, predated by food industry, drugs, gambling. All sorts of porn, you know, prostitution, everything is there, you know, for the taking to just completely hijack them and destroy their lives in the simplest, fastest way. And I feel like this is like a, a very profound problem. And it feels like the only solution for it would be an authoritarianism and a Ludditism that, that has never before been seen,
1: you know, <laughs> right. like just well, it's, stomping. It's, it's not, it. I, think it's, I think it's neither. And a and thing I, I, I wrote about many years ago, I think it's four years ago, um, mm-hmm. I said that what we're really coming into is a philosophic crisis and because the current system of the world has been rooted in you might think about renaissance philosophies and some of the things you know where we have a bunch of supreme court justices who want to interpret the constitution as as it was written in the 1700s right so there's like there's a lot of these kinds of things where our philosophy most of us and our parents and our grandparents there's a lot of philosophical sort of stasis that we've been sitting um, on or that we've been living on for a long time. But the, the combination of a lot of different dynamics in the world today have really brought us to the brink where we see not only have institutions, you know, everyone talks about the collapse of institutions and the overhang and, and, you know, all these things. But at the end of the day, it's not just that the institutions are collapsing. It's that the very philosophies, the architecture, if you will, of how we build institutions that needs to be revisited. And very few people know how to do that kind of thinking because they're creatures of they, they live they're, they're they're rats that have been living in this mall for a very long time the mall's falling apart they have no idea how to build it because they weren't the ones who built the mall in the first place right um but the philosophies that we live under today whether it's you know things like the joint stock corporation right um the the a lot of the mercantilist approaches to life the, 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 the um the cartesian approach to breaking up objects into atom you know sort of atomizing um reducing things down to their smallest components and then believing rationally that you can put them together and the sum is equivalent, you know, the whole is equivalent to the sum of the parts. All these kinds of approaches to life, a lot of things that undergird our, our legal system, you know, English common law and things like that, all these things we're coming to a head now where what it means to be human is radically being transformed by technology, but very few people are equipped to have that conversation. And market forces, to your point, market forces conspire to keep people, you um, discombobulated or, 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 or sort of decohered um, and alienated more and more. And so I think the, the fundamental thing here isn't that we need authoritarianism or that we need ludditism. Well, we, the, the only way out is through, as my friend Jordan likes to say, Jordan Hall. And so when you look at to go through, what does it mean? It means that we have to have eyes wide open towards all the technology. What is possible? What is good? And then what might be harmful? How do we leverage the good technolo- parts of the technology in service of the human need? right? And what is the human need? The human need is to have greater coherency as an embodied individual of many different layers, a physiological layer, a limbic system, a social architecture and cultural groundings, and then the intellectual tier. All of these different layers that comprise at the same time, all of them are activated and all of them are alive within every single individual human being, right? You are never not a physical human being, but you're not merely a physical human. Right. You're not only a thinking machine because you gotta eat, you gotta love, you gotta sleep, you gotta do all these things. But if you didn't do thinking, you'd also be living a pretty worthless life, right? So there's all these things that have to happen together. And the challenge is so much of the world's businesses and business models um, in the modern kind of consumer world are driven by um, sufficing individual. You just basically jam a you know, jam a electrode into one part of the stack that is the human like we're going to tingle this electrode that's going to make this human jiggle this way and then we're gonna get some money out of it and our investors will be happy right and so i would say to your to your thing about how there's all these different commons every single individual their own coherency is actually a commons it's a it's a it's a not just a commons i guess that's that's the wrong way to put it there's agency there and there's sovereignty that they have to manage and to be a sovereign integrated embodied human being with all these different layers of capability um and, and dynamics, that's really hard. No one teaches that, right? And you're right, when you're most challenged, when you're most depressed, when you are most economically suffering, when you're least educated, when you have least access to resources, all these things, when you're inhabiting the lowest parts of the Maslow hierarchy and you're just inhabiting that tier only, that's when things can just easily you know, prey on you very, very easily, because they, they got your number. We are really, really good at computational psychological assessments now, right? Um, and if we don't have the, have the philosophy to talk about what does it mean to be a sovereign, integrated human being, what does it mean to have a relationship versus transactions with other integrated, sovereign human beings, if we don't have the words to talk about why that's good and valuable, then we have no philosophic basis to criticize and critique the swipe up, swipe down, swipe left, swipe right kinds of things. Right? Why would we swipe? Why wouldn't I look at 1,000 potential mates? Well, because you're not really looking at 1,000 potential mates. You're simply being presented the aesthetic imprints of 1,000 avatars. And you're being asked like a monkey to choose from, you know, a menu, which is not how you want to actually approach the process of dating or of, you know, approaching another human being, maybe just build friendships, right? So these are the kinds of things that we don't have the, I don't think there's a coherent body of philosophic work to use to criticize, or criticize the long term, to carve out what is good in the context of modern technologies and, and humans with digital technology.
0: Yeah, I think that at the bottom of this there's there's always kind of the underlying question of of power and also of, you know, mm. what types of um of these options of these kind of philosophical nuances are presented to whom and who has the capacity to actually um, you know, integrate those, understand them, you know, kind of cultivate that personal sovereignty, which is, which is kind of a, it's a, it's a hard dimension even for people who, you know, have been, you know, even for someone like Jordan Hall, who essentially this is his, his métier. This is what he's been thinking about for decades. It's, you know, it's a process. It's something that, you know, he's even presented like, okay, here, here's where you're going to struggle. Here's what's, what's hard about this. It, it is really hard. And, you know, even if you're the kind of person who, you know, is a professional navel gazer. So like someone like myself, <laughs> it's tough. It is tough to, um, you know, to to kind of uh, you know kind of become kind of this meta-rational person where you kind of can see where rationalism fails and then you can kind of reintegrate modules from pre-rational post-rational things. Like this is tough stuff. And essentially you know my my conclusion slowly is that there is a function for a certain type of benevolent paternalism in the sense of almost like nudge theory. Like there are you know Montessori style things like you know you can you can have certain options here are they are. these ones are probably going to be good for you, but just leaving people who just don't have the time or, or even the capacity to be honest to to you know just macerate and think you know philosophically deduce the principles of, of good living from from first principles, um, you know they should have a pathway that has guardrails that has protections for complete failure like don't leave them at the slot machines in las vegas and say you know you're a rational individual you know go you know (laughs) you know go crazy (laughs) you're all out it's on you because it is on you in a way but these things really are predatory
1: they are they are um i I don't i i think uh if so many people were not making money from them (laughs) it would be easier for those people to acknowledge that they were predatory right um I, I think we are, yeah, I mean, I, I I, I don't pretend that every single person can be fully educated about all the philosophies of whatever, um, and I think it is, you know, the, the right approach pragmatically would be to build uh, either templates and guidelines for, hey, look, if you're building an app and you don't want it to hurt your users because you're not a psychopath, um, here are things you can do to just... Don't do these default things as a software developer, right? And so the Center for Humane Technology, there's courses, there's guidelines, there's ways to think about if you're building an app, if you're doing a thing, what are ways that you can just not get yourself into a situation where you're creating these things? And it's amazing, right? This is the the danger of when we have such uh, capable technologies, people who don't have to think about those things, they can still go and build apps. They can still go and build things that are these, uh, you know, Skinnerian boxes or that are, uh, you know, I I remember actually to give you a sense of how simple this is. um, I remember reading years ago, a story about some high school and there was a, some kid had built some cheesy app or they'd gotten on some app where you could just, it was like an anonymous comment board. It was just an anonymous comment board and all the kids in high school started getting it. And you can imagine how that went down. In about two days, I think the place was on fire, right? Like basically (laughs) people were like, kids were outing each other. Other kids were, you know, kids were calling this person a slut. They were saying that person slept with the other person. And just like all the stuff. And the principal basically had to issue like a thing to the parents saying, no more of this app. If we see kids using this app, they will get suspended. But, but do you think, I mean, as a software developer, I can tell you writing an anonymous little uh, uh, whiteboard or chat room application for something on the order of a few hundred people, that's not even an hour's work. That's like so trivial, right? It's like the easiest thing to do in the world, but you can just go and build this little psychosocial bomb, deliver it into the hands of a few dozen. You only need to give it to a few dozen of the popular kids, and then it'll be all over the school. Actually, Community, the TV show, did a great little riff on this, right? With the Meow Meow Beans app. I don't know if you ever saw that, but but it just shows how simple it is when you have these viral dynamics and you use computers, to activate and take advantage of viral dynamics within human social behavior, you are injecting—you know—virality is a bug. You're injecting the stuff into the substrate, and the some of the most valuable companies in the world in the technology space, they do this. So it's really hard for people who are cr- critical of it to come and say, actually, the very fundamental thing you're doing is harmful. Right, it's one thing to for Ralph Nader to say, "Hey, cars are dangerous right now. Add safety belts, add airbags, and whatever," but still, you drive. It's a different thing from to say cars are antithetical to like human development, and you just take all the cars out of off the road. That's a much harder statement to make, right? And you'll have a lot of people very well paid who don't really give a shit we are just going to go and you know go along with people who are in power, people who have money. We do absolutely have this view here in the United States where things. If it's making money as a big company, well, it can't be doing everything wrong, right? It must be doing something right. And um that's not helpful to moving us through this.
0: Yeah, and there's there's kind of the, the contradiction as well. Like, you know, I'm recording this podcast, I work on the internet, you know, everything that happens that produces money for me happens through these screens here for this whole setup. Um, and I was chatting to, to a mom on the playground and everything. And I was kind of telling her, you know, I'm kind of squeamish, you know, I don't really allow the baby to have scream time, you know? And she was like, you know, the thing is they're going to get it in the end and you don't want the child to fall behind, you know, because falling behind on the, on the the tools that produce the money that, you know, that, garner the social status that, you know, that present present you essentially kind of you're coming out as a social person happens on the apps now. You know, it's more important what type of how you present yourself there than you know how you are in interaction with people because you're they're not that often that you interact with people in real life. You know, what what's your so it's like it's this idea that, you know, um one, they're gonna get there anyway. And two, you're um kind of crippling your child by by not allowing them to to learn the language, to learn kind of the social mores of the place that actually matters. It's, you know, the social. Well
1: I don't know if you've seen there's a great video of this like, I think it's it's some kind of, I think it's a chimpanzee or it's an orangutan or something using a social media, like using Instagram or something, just like swiping. Click. So, look, if one of the other great apes, non Homo sapiens <laughs> apes, can use this, I think your kid can get caught up pretty quick. Right. <laughs> and there's literally millions and millions and millions of dollars invested in product designers to make those apps really simple to use. Right. So, there's nothing about falling behind there. I would, it's a good thing I wasn't on the playground because the 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 other parent would have received a little bit of a soapbox rant from me. <laughs> There's nothing to fall behind on here, all right. What they're really falling you want them to explore the natural world. That's where they have competitive advantage. All this other stuff is not hard to learn.
0: Yeah, I, I wasn't convinced by her <laughs> rant, but it was interesting to see her her thinking process. That you know, this is a very important tool of work and social status that, you know, one must learn how to exploit. I don't know. It just felt like, you know, she was really convinced.
1: in the, art, but the But in the 60s, you could have said the same thing for smoking. Get your kids smoking at six, because by the time they're 12, by the time they're 18, their first job, they're going to have to know how to drink how of smoke, right? That's what all the <laughs> adults do. So why don't we give them a little bit of whiskey and, and a cigarette? I mean, there's just something about this that's just so fundamentally, But to your point, at a meta level, this is the predation on those who are less informed about what this is really about.
0: Yeah. And I think it's also because, to be honest, a lot of these moms are very much addicted to their phones. You can see this, you know, they take their, their baby to the to the playground, they just plop it in the sandpit, and then they're just like Instagramming hard. It's just, you know, doing yeah. all the Instagram and they couldn't do well, they were driving or something. Um, and it's probably also kind of a, you know, cognitive dissonance. And they're like, you know, of course the baby needs to watch Cocomelon because, you know... He needs to learn about this important thing that I'm I'm addicted to, so yeah, there's probably some psychological coping happening there. Uh, but yeah, it's it's interesting because you, you mentioned smoking. I mean, I, I used to be addicted to smoking, you know, for a few years, and it was easy to quit because it wasn't tied into like work. I didn't need to open the smoking browser to, to start, right, you know, right. check my email like or something. In order to check
1: your email, right? That's yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's why Twitter is a bit harder. Twitter, it's horrible, right? So many of these apps, when you use the app, I try to explain, my, my son is 12. And as we're building applications, we uh, getting to the point where you can start making real software. And as I talked about the design of these things, I'm like, you know, there was a time when you had applications, they would grab the data, they would show you the data, and they'd grab the emails, they would grab whatever thing, and you do the thing, and then, you know... They were not this like client server thing that was showing you tra- a transient view. And this may seem like a nerdy technical architecture thing, but it's actually deeply, deeply uh, integrated to why the world is, is so, so effed up right now. When you look at some of these apps, they have um, infinite, first of all, infinite scrolling. Second of all, they don't let you really easily configure your filters and view. And you have to jump through a lot of hoops for them to not push the feed to you. Any app that's got a thing like a feed and it's algorithmic and it's infinite scrolling and you can't bookmark the thing you were just reading because when you go back to the app after 10 minutes, it refreshes the front the front page, it refreshes, refreshes the feed. All this stuff, just the design motif of the feed is absolutely toxic for long-term attention, for people feeling that like they have agency and sovereignty over their informational environment. I mean, every time, I swear, every time I go back to Reddit because I'm reading deep in some comment thread somewhere, But that, you know, I go to something else to get back to reading the thread, but I open the Reddit app and decides to refresh everything. And I lose my context. I, I, I cuss at it. Like I'm so mad because this is, and I'm a Reddit premium subscriber and everything. Like I should be able to read the damn content. Why can't I just be where I was? You know, imagine have a book and you opened up and you closed it for a while. You couldn't flip to the middle of the book again. Like that's so stupid of a design. Why are they intended to do it that way? As a software engineer, I can tell you, it's not hard to actually, it's easier to implement it the other way. There's less traffic on your servers. There's less banging on your servers all the time. But there's less ad revenue. There's less engagement metrics to show your VCs. There's all these things. So these apps are designed to reel people in by the eyeballs and hold them there, right? I mean, you could just keep scrolling. And it'll keep giving you stuff. Um, and that's that's really the design principle that I think needs to just, if there was any single thing that we could nuke, we could just nuke that. So you have the app. You you get the content. You get the feed of like the people you subscribe to, and that's it. And you scroll through it, and you're done. You can actually be done with it, right? We've created these things. It's an infinite cigarette. You just never get to the end of it. You don't even have to stop and light another one. You just keep sucking down uh, on the nicotine. That's an incredibly inhumane design approach.
0: Yeah, but it is, it is pretty much the thing it's that standard. makes... Yeah, and it does it does make a lot of money. I mean, without if if you're still going to rely on an ad model, if you're still going to rely on VCs paying for you, if you're still going run the stock market. Like it all kind of trickles into the fact that you know the most valuable companies are going to be those that are going to maximize ad revenue. Um, will people be? Disposed to pay a subscription model, maybe for something like that, maybe you or i i I would do it probably maybe depending on you know how you know we'll see, <laughs> but uh, you know I think it it's kind of a a, a subsection of the population who actually realizes and and feels you know deep in their bones, maybe people who actually have experience with software and know how to sausage is made um understand you know how how this is made and why it's bad um will pay for that, but it feels like for you know we we have infinite scroll and we have an ad revenue model because people aren't prepared to pay for this stuff in other ways you know you're 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 essentially kind of productizing yourself uh mm-hmm. in in the worst of ways
1: yeah i mean subscription models are right now the obvious sort of alternative to that um but if you look at what actually is needed again uh this is where the web3 folks you know jump in here right this is where i'm going to jump in with some of the I, i'm not i don't consider myself a web3 person per se but I certainly agree with the architectural critiques. If you yes, ask me,
0: ju- enlighten us about oh, Web three. Well,
1: because
0: what is it?
1: <laughs> yeah. So what it is is a lot of crypto bros jumped on a thing that wasn't called Web three, and they decided to call it Web three, and they try to sell all of NFTs and all this stuff. But if you take all that stuff away, you say, what is ultimately? How does the internet really work? You have a computer in your hand or on your desktop, whatever. Your computer needs some data. It connects to a server over there to get the data. And if you want to push data out to a lot of people, if you push it to the server, the server can make sure that when those other people connect, they get it as well. It's a shared mailbox. It's like you go to the post office, if you, and rather than dropping mail off in the mailbox in front of your house, you go to the post office, deposit it, and the, the post office can make 50,000 copies of it and stick it to everyone's PO boxes. And then everyone, when they go and check their PO box, they get it. That's fine. Like, that's kind of a, that's a model. The problem is when you make it so that people have to go there to get it, Right. So when you make it so people can't get the data and read in an offline fashion, um, then what happens is the server, every time you go, right, when you imagine if you go down to the post office, you check your PO box, when you put your key in there, the instant you turn the key, the PO box goes and asks every single person who wants, every single one of those automated mailers that wants to spam you, says, hey, we have this person coming in, what would you, how much will you bid to stuff something into this inbox right now? And then everyone bids, and that's how all of the ad exchanges work right now. Like when you go and you hit a website, I don't know if people know this. When you go and hit a website from a web browser and your computer, in the space of milliseconds, the information about you, who you are, what zip code, your likelihood, you know, college degrees, um, kids, dogs, everything, all that stuff, it's put on a market, and there's an instant bidding process, and ad uh, inventory is served out to show up on the web page when it loads up for you. That's how ads actually work on the internet today. It happens in the space of milliseconds. It takes a tremendous amount of computing infrastructure to host all this content, to make people come back, grab the content to serve up the ads and also have all the creepy surveillance on you to know everything about you, just serve up to the ad marketplaces. And, and that's how the internet works. It wasn't this way before, and it doesn't have to architecturally be this way. It could just be, you got the data you want to share with your friends and you want to share a link with them. You just share the content to them, right? You could actually build an internet and build a network where data was shared peer-wise. You don't have these points of centralization that are so expensive and that require giant warehouses of computers. And that peer-to-peer system would actually work. So you think about BitTorrent and Napster, the original MP3 music sharing system, all these were non-centralized ways for people to share stuff with each other. Granted, there's copyright issues there that people you know, get on very quickly, but, but the actual need the actual ability to share content with each other and to do it in a way that doesn't require creating a Facebook or a Google-style data center to host everything for everyone and then, you know, snap their eyeballs as they come in for the content, you could absolutely do that. And that's the underlying architectural concept behind Web3 is just that, look, you've got, you know, a cell phone with hundreds of gigabytes of data storage. Um, that could be all of the articles you read in 10 years, right? Not videos. Videos takes more space but you have all that on your phone. It could just be stored on your phone. Um, and if you wanna share something with me, you just send it to me and it could go very quickly. It takes, it takes like no time at all because text is very small. Even a podcast, this entire podcast, however you know, many minutes it is, it's, it'll be maybe you know, tens of megabytes, but that's very fast in, in modern digital transfer um, terms. So we can all be doing data sharing in a way that's different than the client server architecture. And that's what Web3 is about. It's can we create a way so that people, creators can share their content, still have the attributions so they can monetize when people are viewing the content or playing it. And then we basically decentralize. That's why it started off as the decentralized web movement. And then somehow, like a bunch of crypto people got into it and were like, hey, we can sell you JPEGs and sell you domain names and all this other stuff. And it's Web3. And it sort of got a little bit out of hand. But the concept, I think, at the pure heart of it is still very, very good. And I'm deeply supportive of Moving away from this client-server model to create uh, to get rid of the incentives for startups to feel like they have to raise a bunch of money, put an ad revenue model in to centralize all the stuff. Don't do it. Just ship an app. Let your users pay for the things and let them share with each other and create content and just do it that way. So anyway, that was a bit of a soapbox, but hopefully that gives you a bit more. No, that's on it.
0: that's really that's really useful because um yeah I I wonder like for example in an application like. Twitter. Um, mm-hmm. If I were to, you know, if if we were in in Web point three land, and and this is, uh, yeah, uh, you know, we we're trying to have a so, sort of kind of social media platform. Would I have to, for example, pay Twitter I don't know, subscription, buy the Twitter app, and then host it on my kind of local machine, and then whoever interacts with me, if they have a com- compatible app, then the apps would essentially chat to the local machines on on that level. And then that would essentially create the whole network without us having to resort to Twitter's centralized servers.
1: Right, right. Some people might run, um, it it would be a, you know, there's different models for this. So there's existing social, somewhat social uh, applications, um, like the Mastodon Mastodon and Matrix, some of these other folks. There's um, Secure Scuttlebutt. There's a number of different, I mean, there's so many projects that are basically working on this model where individuals can do point-to-point. But if you want to have an always-on presence or if you want to aggregate, you know, a few friends get together, you can run a little hosted server, and a single server can actually take a lot of content. Um, It can actually host and serve a lot of users. So if you're not trying to serve, like, Donald Trump's tweets to, like, a billion people, you don't have a problem. You can run the cheapest server off Amazon Web Services and have something that can handle a reasonable amount of load at a community level. So what ends up happening is that you would have a lot of these servers that would then bounce traffic back to each other. That would share, you know, you and I, we might connect to the same server, we might not, but we would be able to route these things to each other. And this is actually how email works. Email is actually a federated system and a decentralized system. Of course, everyone just uses Gmail now, but um, you know, corporate email servers they speak a certain protocol, email's protocol, to Gmail server to the whatever you know, Microsoft Hotmail server. Like they all sort of talk in this way. So we can use that same model. For doing smaller fragments, you know, uh, with with social media kinds of things, and that would work fine. And then the key thing about this, architecturally, the really key thing about this is you then have control as the user in the app. You could say, "I want to kill uh, what we call, used to in the early days of the internet. We call it a K file, a kill file. I never want to hear from these particular a-holes ever again because they're rude, they're brash, and they're stupid. I'm going to put their you know IDs, whatever, into." my my block list and i'll just never have to see them again have i cancelled them off the network no if they want to go and talk to other people or if one of my friends still wants to engage with them and maybe there's a really good point they made and my friend tells me hey look i am going to take send you a snippet of what this person said because i think it's really useful you might want to look at this again then we can but there's no central authority that says this person is completely off of the network or this person will never be off the network let's give their stuff to fifty thousand more people right you have this a more responsive, not responsive, you have a thing that flows more between the different value systems and norms and whatnot. No one's forced to make a decision for everyone, right?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there would not be suspended accounts. There would be blocked accounts by individual users where you'd like, I personally do not want to see this content. You'd make a decision and add them to your kill file, but...
1: Right, um, and you could also follow someone else. I might say, look, I really trust, I trust Alex. I trust, you know, these other friends of mine. If they've really downweighted weighted it doesn't have to be a one, you know, a total on-off switch. It could be a weighting factor, right? You might weight somebody minus 0.25, right? You might give them like minus three stars to minus five stars to minus infinite stars. And then when I, you know, there's some new content that my agent goes and grabs for me. It's like, hey, you might want to look at these things. My personal recommender will go and weight all that based on the summed aggregate weights of my friends. Like these are the kinds of things that these companies run on the back end anyway. For everyone. They run recommenders for every single account, right? To show you stuff. But what this would do is this would federate that so that we would all run those on our own accounts. And it's possible to do that without requiring that scale of um centralization and the scale of you know computing power they need to do it.
0: Yeah, I um th- the first guest on this podcast was um Rocco Mage, if you if you're familiar with his uh his work is also kind of in no. the rush. Rocco's basilisk, if you've ever heard of that. Oh, oh yes,
1: uh, yes, basilisk, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. So Basilis guy. He was the first so guest Basil's on my, my podcast. That
1: was the guy. Yeah. Okay. Uh
0: and uh he had this idea. I don't know if it was his idea, but kind of he kind of floated it into into my awareness uh of the personal AI, having kind of this mm-hmm. Completely customizable you know intermediate layer between you and the hell world that is the internet right. <laughs> proper then that could be a way to to kind of engage with whatever is and then you essentially just set the parameters on your personal AI and have this kind of like a concierge yeah do you think that that's um, I don't know do you think that that's possible is that a, a potential direction that our relationship with technology
1: might have that's the only possible humane direction not only is it possible it is possible but it's also the only one that still has the human in the loop and in the driver's seat um because if you make it so that in a sense we all have these personal ais they're just running all inside the cages of these giant multi-trillion dollar tech companies who are then incented to weight them this way or weight them that way or boost somebody or deboost somebody else and all this stuff and that architecturally um where jordan if i could take a page from what jordan might say when you have such centralized control, then the problem is that even out of good intentions, even if you know, they weren't trying to only cancel this person or that person, or if whatever, if they really were trying their level best, right? To do the best job possible, to give everyone really great experiences and give them exposure to new ideas and all these things. At the end of the day, um, when, you are, when you sit with that much power, you can't help but have that power be perverted. You cannot help but have people with even greater power Right to come to you and say, hey, you know what? No, no, no. that get that get rid of that, right? So the issue is that the centralization itself is the danger thing because humans are not good at operating centralized systems of that much scale and control. We we just not, and so we have to, in my opinion, decentralize that. Put the power and then, but 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 when people go decentralization, this is where the hyper individualist stuff is also its own kind of anti pattern right then every single like incel in their own hole has trained their own ai to just reinforce to them how right they are about their incelness right what you actually want is in the cascade you want to have communities you want to have support networks you want to have families right there is something you know for all the stuff i said earlier about broadcast media itself having a set of harms a uh, ledger harms that are different than social media one thing about broadcast that is interesting is families used to all get together and watch one screen So the kids would know what the parents were seeing and the level of conversation discourse that was appropriate for parents. And parents would also know completely and absolutely what their kids were being exposed to. And so you could have a conversation as a family. We only watch Fox News. As a family, we watch three different talk shows. As a family, we'll never listen to rock and roll, right? Whatever it is, but as a family, you have a conversation about who you are as a family. But when you get to this hyper-individualized thing, and this is the thing about that, that other mom you were talking to on the playground, if she gives a kid if she gives a kid their own device and they're swiping and doing whatever kind of things she's basically alienating herself from her child's media experiences and her child's also alienated from her if they were to share a screen that's okay I would actually be more okay with that let your son or daughter watch what you're swiping on Instagram right um and and this is and this is like the sort of thing which I think when we go like in the West in particular, and when I say we need new philosophies, we're at the end of hyper-individualized, hyper-liberalism kind of thing. We, we actually need to have conversations about what does it mean to be together? What does it mean to form a family unit? What does it mean to form a, a, a society or a group or a community? Because if we just reason about the world, either in the bulk aggregate, the entire country must do this, uh, or in the individual. Well, I am this way, I feel that way. Who are you to tell me I can't feel that way? Those two modes of analysis leave so much on the table. And so many problems are unapproachable using only those two modes of analysis. And I think that's the part that, unfortunately, once you start using the conver- once you start talking about community norms, values, and families, things like that, it's really easy for the kind of modern reactionary far left to put you in the box of like, oh, you're just like tradcore. Like you're just totally, you know, whatever trad. I don't even know what the slang is anymore, but you're just like, you know, <laughs> Very, very yeah, traditional. Yeah, reactionary.
0: Yeah, reactionary,
1: reactionary. Blah, 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 Something. I'm sure they got terms for it. But, um, but again, this fascist, is where is usually yeah, what they resort to fascist, to it. right. You're, yeah, they'll just dig somewhere in there to find some white supremacy, even if you're a Chinese guy talking about it, right? Um, but anyway, I think the 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 thing about it is like there are the other thing is there's a demographic aspect. Once you get older, I've got two kids, uh, eight and twelve years old. Once you start forming a family and you start being responsible. You cannot help but re- be responsible for another human life outside of yourself, it erodes a little bit of that individualism. It takes away, it makes it at least more stark when you're being alienated. And um, and I think that helps r- take some of the edges off. when you have like early 20 something year olds, 20 somethings, and the guys aren't getting laid and the girls feel like they're just being totally objectified by these apps, and like it's just all terrible. It's all sorts of terrible. And it's just hyper individualist sort of raging on the internet that provides just a background of noise and froth.
0: Yeah, no, I I completely agree. I mean, both of these metaphors are faulty and so what we need is some, some synthesis that, that, you know, accepts the fact that, you know, there are certain degrees of freedom that reside in the individual. And there are certain degrees of freedom that reside in kind of the, the meta level. The fact that we are kind of a super organism when we are together at the level of families, communities, and yes. even nations and stuff. So we need to model at both those levels. So I think that maybe kind of the synthesis here would be that you know just the architecture of these systems needs to reflect deep truths about humanity, about how humans need to how humans interact, you know how how relational we are. and it's 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 a hard question because deciding what these truths are, and you know what, you know, what facts and what factors do you bring into this analysis and what do you consider? Uh, if you're a hardcore libertarian, you would say that, you know, humans are, you know, the rational animal and there's like a homunculus behind the eyes that's pulling the strings. And, you know, that's, sorry, that's I how like that. I just, but yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, you know, you, you have your meat suit, you can customize it, you know, put new right. skins on, all sorts of things. That's kind of like the, you know, you know, left libertarian view of, of life where you just kind of have all these immense degrees of freedom at the level of the individual, super traditional reactionary would be like okay the 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 only level of abstraction is you know the community that's the number one thing. sacrifice the individual, you know, protect the community. Right. Um, that's also a bit extreme, especially with the level of technology that we've had to this point. we essentially the the why we aren't communitarian is also because we have the option to not be like, we can live alone. We can't feed ourselves by our own labor. You know, it's like, I hear people saying, Oh, you know, we need to restrict, you know, the, the freedoms of women. Fine. How are you going to do it? My my problem is that even <laughs> even if that would be a good idea, and may, maybe it is. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm I'm very agnostic to all sorts of social arrangements. How are you going to do it? Because at the moment, women can just go out and be completely independent in the marketplace, and just mm-hmm. you know go to store or work and just you know which which of these freedoms are you going to restrict, and what what angle are you going to take on it? So it's very hard to put this genie back in the box in, in that sense. So yeah, I think you know it's. It's outside of regulating tech in some very novel ways. I don't really see how to, um, I don't know, exert this, I don't know, intervention.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I think part of, um, frankly, you know, having conversations like this, right, building audiences that can think about these questions and just even sit with them for a little bit and be intentional and in contemplating that, I think these are you know, they're not silver bullets are They don't seem like sexy, like solve the world kind of things. But at the same time, all of these little things do ultimately add up for people. Um, and, um, and to my earlier point, we are really in uncharted territory. Um, we're in uncharted territory because we know uh, again, from a deep humanitarian perspective, there's a lot of things that in traditional points of view, uh, where they you know, there's very strict gender rules uh, and a very family and communitarian over the individual kind of thing, that that has a lot of problems, right? And it's not great for a lot of reasons. But we also are seeing that the hyper individualism um, turning people into just mere consumers of mass produced, capital fueled whatever is like not a way to live either. So the question of how do we be together in a world where we have all these capabilities? we could actually feed and clothe everyone. We could actually provide a lot of things for a lot of people, but the current arrangements of the world make it so that doing that is a sucker's bet. Like you're just never going to win or outcompete the systems that are exploitative, right? So the big question that looms is, you know, number one, what is a better configuration that we could get to? So you have a sense of vision of where you're trying to get to. And number two, then how do we exit the current system or transform the system to get to that point? And so this is where... Jordan and me and like Jim Rutt and we uh, a lot of people kind of in that space of thinking around what we call game B, we're asking these questions. How do we just, what is the configuration of the world so that we ultimately do suffice the, not suffice, but we make it so that we solve this defection problem, right? We have, we, you know, people can be together, people can be honest and virtuous and courageous and have that not be outcompeted competed by these engines of either authoritarian top-down control or of hyper-individualist, exploitated, uh, exploited and, and alienated consumption? How can we actually, you know, scarcity mindset kind of stuff, how do we actually create an abundance mentality and collaboration and have that be a winning play for people, right? That's kind of the big question that we haven't solved given modern realities, given modern technology, given all these things. I think people hunger for it if we're able to produce a set of templates or guidelines for how to do this. I think people would be very, very eager. There's lots of Ears to hear about what that could be, but I don't think anyone has any answers right now, based on what I've seen. There's lots of approaches that might get there, but um, but that's the, really the big question is just the fundamental question of the human condition: how do we be together? Right, that's really what comes to. It.
0: Yeah, I I do think that's one of the the core questions, and it's it's one of those questions where I think a lot of people are thinking about. Uh, kind of top-down ideas, you know, kind of political philosophy, you know, what what is the best regime? Uh, how to what what should we <laughs> implement? I think you know, it's it probably will start at the level of the small, and not necessarily at the level of the individual again, but at the level of you know at, of families, of of smaller communities, of the places that. I think at the moment are the most uncomfortable for a lot of people. And and, right. and that group, I've included myself. It's, it's been really hard to kind of plug back into. I mean, after, after just working, you know, in fair, fairly kind of alienating places and, uh, you know, just like urban environments and then on the internet, just, you know, COVID times, just Zooming and all this stuff, just going back and, you know, just finding, like, a, a mommy kid group and doing all this type of stuff has been quite surprisingly hard, you know. For someone who's just, like, almost professionally talking to people, you know, it's, right. it's easier for me to do a podcast than to just, you know, like, sneak into, like, a... Mommy baby group here in Romania, and try to you know make friends and stuff, and just try to be normal, (laughs) you know, not 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 like an internet weirdo, and and you know just kind of reconnect to 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 reality. And yeah, it's it's been it's been quite you know I'm doing it, but it's surprisingly hard. So yeah, it's it's one of those small skills that you think ah you know it's just you know part of the human condition to be able to just. Do it, but it's so yeah, it's it's it it gets eroded with time just by you know lack of practice, I guess.
1: Yeah, I found the same thing. I mean, I'm very extroverted. I interact with lots of people, very comfortable in conferences, things like that. And when we first started going back to in-person meetings and conferences, after the first few of those meetings, I I found myself having to go back to my hotel room and just like chill for a moment and just like come down off of the energy exertion. I never used to notice it taking energy. It was always give it would always give me energy, right? Um and I didn't know what any of the introverts were talking about. <laughs> They're like, oh, this is exhausting me around people. For me, it was always producing energy. But but then just getting back to it after a couple of years uh, during COVID, it was it, it's difficult. Um I think if you're really authentically trying to engage, it takes a tremendous amount of energy to observe and to be and to just, you know, be in that in the fully embodied relationship. But I would hope that as a species we're not losing that <laughs> capability. <laughs> Hope that, you know, younger generations will be ditching their phones and ditching their connections and going out and being with each other more and more. Maybe we just need a burnout phase right now. Maybe this is the first, just like with cars and leaded gasoline. We had to do that for a little while before we realized, oh, crap, that's really bad. And so maybe we're just going to learn through this. And we have a couple of generations we screw up, but then we figure it out. Uh, You know, I'm hoping. One can knock yeah, on wood and hope
0: that hope that so. work. I hope yeah. so. I hope demographic collapses doesn't, doesn't happen first before nice. before we we realize that. Um, so um, before I let you go, I'm going to ask you the question of the show. Everyone gets asked this question. Okay. Um, do you have a subversive thinker? Uh, it could be anyone alive, dead, a writer, a software programmer person, whoever you think is, was influential in your thinking and you think is underrated and that people should check out, you know, maybe read more of, um, or simply just uh, be aware of.
1: Subversive thinker, huh?
0: Has to be subversive kind of in the spirit of the show, you know, it doesn't have to be. Yeah. Like-
1: <laughs> well, there's a friend of mine that I think it embodies the spirit of that subversive, uh, sort of thing. Um, not afraid to be contrarian, not afraid to take some different points of view, uh, very rationalist, very sci- scientifically minded person, uh, a guy named Creon Levitt. Um, I don't know how much he's written, but he is involved in all sorts of different kinds of things, space and psychedelics and you know, uh, physics and all sorts of interesting things. Um, and um, But he's, he's like a scientist who's not afraid to investigate the paranormal, for instance, and really engage on concepts there. Um, and so he has a deep network of people who are scientists and physicists that investigate alien and paranormal kinds of phenomenon and um uh and so he would be someone that i would put in that category for sure um but then yeah that, that would that would be the that would be the person i would i would point to
0: excellent cool so it's it's creon levitt
1: yes C R E O N uh, L E V I T.
0: It. okay perfect perfect i'll I'll put him in the show notes yeah well uh hopefully we can investigate and see if he's written something down so that the yeah that I'll, I'll, <laughs>
1: I'll embarrass him i'll ask him hey is there anything that we could supply for this podcast where i just name dropped you um yeah he's a he's an interesting dude
0: excellent cool well i'll, I'll look him up and, and investigate and see um perfect well thank you so much peter this was this was a, a lovely chat um yeah i think it was um you know i i always try to not make this this podcast very blackpilling i think this was kind of an upbeat episode even <laughs> if we discovered some some very dark corners of human nature but uh yeah um I don't know. I'm I'm always oscillated between being like semi-techno optimist and like a total, you know, blood thinking that like, no, we need to need to burn it to the ground. So <laughs> I'm happy, I'm happy you were here to provide some uh some more some in-depth context from someone who's actually, you know, dealing with these things, you know, using this substance on a day-to-day basis and uh, kind of dispelled some of the, some of our confusions, <laughs> especially, yeah, about Web3. I mean, I, I see it everywhere, but I'm like, what exactly is this? So uh, thank you so much for for illuminating us. And thank you well, for coming
1: on. They, yeah, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. I appreciate everything you're doing. And um, yeah, definitely always have hope, right? I mean, that's the, the, life is never settled. Life exists between fire and ice, right? Between chaos and just totally frozen nothingness. So we are always faced with the choice of looking at the world through the lens of cynicism or through the lens of vision or aspiration. Um, and we should find things that we can aspire to. And uh, when we lose hope, that's when we are really defeated, right? Um, in the worst case, with all the bad things that are happening, I still think there'll be billions of humans alive on the planet hundred years from now. And um, if we can lay the groundwork and build pieces and things to give them to build a better future with, then that's, that's what we should do, so.
0: Yeah, perfect. I, I love that final thought. Thank you so much, Peter. Thank you. If you like what you're hearing, want to see where I take it, and maybe want early access to episodes, bonus episodes, access to the AMA, or you just want to support the cause of dissident speech or my work in general, head to my Patreon at patreon.com slash AK Subversive. Your donations are what keeps the lights on and makes the show possible. So thank you.